Welcome to the Sacred Lab Podcast. I'm your host, Ryan. On today's episode, we're joined by Dr. Tim Moss. Tim has been a biomedical research scientist for 20 years. He's recently moved into the field of men's health, uh, working with Healthy Male as their health content manager. I've known Tim for quite a while. He's a wonderful communicator of research and science in general. Um, So thank you so much for joining us today. I appreciate your attention very much, so I'll keep this brief. Uh, Like, subscribe, comment if this following conversation does it for you. Uh, And otherwise, enjoy this conversation with Dr. Tim Moss. waiting for it to tell me there we go dr tim moss ryan thank you how are you mate yeah i'm good how you doing really well thank you so are our penises shrinking Uh, mine's not is yours (laughs) i'm pretty sure mine's not (laughs) oh but when it comes to men's health you start talking about the length or width of a penis and you get all the attention in the world yeah i'll bet um the short answer is probably not but we don't really know for sure and that's that's the frustrating thing about lots of uh lots of medicine lots of what we know about health there's all this stuff that we believe but it's not always based in fact and and some of it there's no facts to go along with it but it's probably true right okay the the idea that that our penises might be shrinking um comes from a couple of studies where uh people's penis length has been measured in uh, different populations uh, who are exposed to different types of environmental pollutants there's a famous study from italy where there's a couple of different villages one of which is near i think a tanning plant and the stuff that washes into the waterways has very badly polluted the environment and there was a suggestion in a research study that the penises of the men who lived there might be a little smaller than their neighbors but everybody's penis was in within a normal range um and there's just there's not enough there's not enough to be sure that the effects are sort of real of any real significance and and it's certainly not the case that we can blame the tanning plant for the problem so yeah so this is kind of tied in with like um estrogenic or like Mm. exogenous estrogen compounds and how they might be affecting the body yeah um is there a link with that and sperm count that you've that you're aware of 
again, there's some scientific papers that would suggest that there is an effect, but not enough to convince me. I'm I'm pretty skeptical of most things, though, mate. So. Um, my job where I work is to look at everything with a scientific eye. And in doing that, it's easy to poke holes in scientific evidence when you understand how the work is done and um, you have an appreciation of the limitations of the information that you can gather from scientific studies and stuff. Um, so far as the estrogenic compounds and sperm count is concerned, um, I've recently written an article for Healthy Male about sperm count. Uh, there was a recent study that looked at all of the evidence that the researchers could find about sperm counts and how they change in time and how they vary between different places. And there's definitely geographic variation, which might be related to environment, it might be related to the race, of the people who live in those places. Um, but there's not quality evidence to show that there's a change in sperm counts over time. There's a very famous uh, study, uh, a book that followed up and worldwide excitement about the idea that we might be heading towards never having any sperm. Um, I, I think that's actually nonsense based on bad science and dodgy interpretations of evidence. Yeah. But, but so far as the, you know, estrogenic compounds are concerned, our BPAs and um, those other things that help to make plastics the way we want them, um, there's, there's certainly evidence that the estrogenic activity um, caused by those compounds has effects on sexual development and function. So these are these are molecules that are used in the in the manufacture of the plastic to make it stiff enough to form a bottle and those sorts of things. Um, what happens is the structure of the molecules are similar to estrogen. So when our body sees that compound, it thinks it's estrogen and reacts the way it would if it was reacting to estrogen. Now, I'm no biochemist. I don't know for sure how much sort of estrogenic activity you get for those molecules, whether it's equivalent to what you would get for the same amount of estrogen. Um, but certainly the levels of those sorts of compounds in uh, well, another one is um, register receipts, right? Those thermally printed receipts you get out of the registers at supermarkets and places like that. Um, they have a little bit of that stuff in them as well. Mm. Um, some people have suggested we probably shouldn't touch them, but our skin's a pretty good barrier and probably bugger all gets in. Um, and we'd have to eat our receipts before we worried about it in terms of, of dose, right? Yeah. Um, so all of these sorts of things factor in, you know, how biologically active are these compounds? 
um, what doses are we exposed to, and then what doses of them do we need to have an effect? Lots of the information we have comes from experiments in animals, which are really good for looking at mechanisms and for controlling all of the other variables. But often in experiments like that, the doses of these molecules are way higher than you or I would see in our day to day. Right. Okay. So it's not to suggest that there's no, like there's clearly an effect from having these things in our environment so readily, but whether they're going to make us an infertile species in the long term, the evidence doesn't necessarily say that. Yeah, I think that's probably right. The other the other problem with some of these chemicals and another another type of um, uh, phthalates, so molecules that are involved in making nonstick fry pans and uh, waterproofing and that sort of stuff. Um, these chemicals, they, they sit in the environment for a long time. They're not broken down quickly. So they accumulate, they accumulate in the environment and they can also accumulate in our bodies to some extent. Yeah. Um, I, I said before, it's my job to look at the science. Um, science is a somewhat a reactive process in, in this area. Um, Lots of the effect might have occurred, or is it a bit like climate change? Mm. You know, we're all, we're already uh, in a situation where climate change is the reality, and um, these environmental pollutants in some places are the reality. Yeah. Working out exactly uh, how to deal with it and what the effects are is something that science is coming to. A little bit later. Okay. Um, you, you've done a lot of work within like the communication of science. Yeah. Um, what have you noticed about how science is portrayed in the media kind of over the last few years? And just has it I don't know, like I'm no, just for me with the very little amount of understanding that I have, there's, um, I've noticed that people are much more willing to be like, this is now a thing. This is, this is the fact and science says this, but the, the evidence may not even like, like the, like the evidence may suggest something, but yep kind of when it gets latched onto by a certain media organization, they're like, this is the way it is. Um, yep. Yeah, how have you noticed that, that, that um, the shift in how things are portrayed in the media through science? Yeah. I think that the whole COVID thing changed people's relationship to health information. I think generally our bodies are pretty resilient and they can handle a lot of what we throw at them. Uh, at some point, they kind of break or get diseased or something. Um, COVID made everything more immediate 
to people. They understood largely that the way we behave can affect our health. So, you know, all the people wearing masks and getting vaccinated and all of those sorts of protective things um, were, were necessary immediately. Whereas making sure we eat well, um, making sure we exercise enough, those things that have a longer um, time scale to them in terms of their influence in health are things that I think men in particular are pretty, pretty bad at, um, at enacting. You know, we, we have lots of messages about the need to eat well and, and move enough. Yeah. Um, but we know that, that men's health behaviour when it comes to prevention and that sort of stuff um, is wanting in some respects. Um, so far as the people, so, so that's, you know, so I think we, as a society, generally we understand a little bit better that um, we need to do things to look after ourselves. I think that in terms of the information, I think COVID was a pretty damn good example of how science is not always sure. Um, you know, the uncertainty about the effects of, uh, well, the, the, the symptoms caused by COVID, the uh, uh, the risk from various activities, all of that stuff was, we had a little bit of information along the way or, or prior to COVID-19 that could guide us. Um, but, you know, people were wiping their groceries with sanitary wipes because they were concerned about COVID sitting on the boxes outside on their doorstep. Mm. Um, whereas, you know, people were running around suggesting that um, something that we knew could float around in the air for an hour or two um, might not be causing airborne transmission. So uh, the, uh, so I think that demonstrated well that science is an uncertain or, or that science deals with degrees of certainty, I guess, or, or degrees of doubt. Um, so I think people understand that a little better as well. One thing that, um, one thing that we're probably not good enough at is knowing who to believe and who not to believe. But that that's a really difficult one. Um, there was a study published um, probably earlier this week that looked at the quality of health information from Instagram and TikTok. And it looked at accounts that are run by members of the public versus health professionals. And, and largely, these are individual efforts. They're not organizations that are fronting these channels, you know. Um, and there's a the majority of stuff that's, uh, say, published through TikTok and Instagram in terms of health information that was looked at in this study. Um, 
has problems with it. Most of it has problems with it. Um, the health professionals were a bit better than people who don't have health qualifications, um, but still they don't always get it right mm. either. Um, and and these are these are channels that people use a lot for health information. So you know there's there's billions of TikTok videos and Instagram posts about people's health. Yeah. They're very popular, some of these. Yeah. So that information, you know, the, the, if there is misinformation or inaccurate information in those things, it has a very wide spread. Uh, somebody once said that, you know, that it takes an, the amount of effort required to correct those bad messages is at least 10 times that of what it is to propagate the poor message in the first place. Yeah. Um, and th this is the part about communicating science that I I kind of kind of like is that first there's the necessity of getting the message uh, to be accurate, and then you've got to have people be able to understand it. So there's that sort of translation if you want for for different audiences. I can talk to GPs differently about things than I talk to endocrinologists or um, fathers, for example. Um, and then there's the the kind of channel that comes from. Um, academics like to read things in scientific papers. So if you want to influence them, you have to go that route. Um, whereas you and I uh, might turn to a trusted health source for information but we also might do what our sports coach suggests because mm. we trust people like that to provide us with with useful correct information and you know everybody brings their own perspective when they're giving the message and uh, we judge the credibility of all of these people um, differently and then as groups we trust or distrust other people to varying degrees as well. You know, um, Anthony Fauci might have been a pinup boy for many, but he was demonised by as many people, I'm sure. Yeah. So when it comes to influencing people's behaviour with health messages, there's lots to it. And a really important part is having people feel like the information is coming from somebody that they can trust and, and someone who's kind of part of their tribe almost. You know, that's that's why we developed communication, right, was to bond socially. And uh, we don't listen to outsiders like we do people who are part of our group. Yeah. Well, that's... That kind of ties into one of the, so you did a 18 month study recently with men's health. Yep. You, you were looking at some of the things that prevent men from accessing mm. health services. Yep. And one of the, 
um, one of the things that you found uh, was that difficulty initiating discussions was kind of one of the five major psychosocial barriers. Yep. And one of the main components of that, oh, actually, sorry, the next one was trust. Yep. Um, within a clinical setting, uh, it, 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 it seems relevant that trust would be like number one priority to establish that beforehand since we, you know, since we're not in our, you know, Dunbar's number of 150 people who you've known your entire life, you can definitely trust them. They may not be giving you good information, but you can definitely trust them because they're all you have. Yep. And we've now got much too large a number of people around us. And maybe you've had your family doctor for most of your life, but probably not. Mm. Um, you would kind of think that trust would be like fundamental, like build that, like the first few times you meet up with your client, don't even talk about anything or offer any advice, just build rapport. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. I found that, I found that really interesting when you brought that up. I was like, yeah, no shit. That's, <laughs> that's really important. Yeah. It, 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 it's, it's critical, right? We're, we're trusting people with, you know, in some cases our lives, and we want somebody who is uh, has sufficient expertise, you know, in terms of their intellectual capacity and diagnosis, um, in terms of what they know about how to treat disease. Um, if it's a surgeon, we we want them to be technically highly capable as well. Um, It, it, it's not uh, it's not surprising that when it comes to our health that we expect those things because of our vulnerability mm. we are unwell and we need help we're going to put our health in your hands sort of thing um, blokes blokes don't like to appear vulnerable generally so opening them up opening themselves up to a doctor who they might know, they might not know, first off, that's challenging, right? And, and I guess trust goes both ways. The doctor needs you to be telling them everything that's relevant um, for them to help you with your health. Um, and and trust trust's tricky because when it comes to things like our health that are important to us and, you know, bloody hell, my leg's nearly falling off, I need help, doctor. Um, if, if we don't get the help that we think we need, then we're not going to be trusting. Mm. Um, there, there are examples of, you know, people who say, well, I went to one doctor and he told me that my abdominal pain was caused by gastro and then I went to another doctor or my mate had the same symptoms and he went to a different doctor and he told him it was probably just muscular so that that lack of certainty again in diagnosis um, 
can then affect how trusting we are of health professionals in general or health professionals of a particular discipline. You know, I went to the chiropractor and I feel like a million bucks. That immediate response to one treatment by a particular type of health professional can have a lasting impact on our health behaviors. Mm. Well, the chiropractor fixed me, the GP's never been able to, so I'll go to the chiropractor from now on. It's all well and good until you have something that chiropractors can't treat um, and you need medical help, but you've, you've become distrusting of it because they haven't, it hasn't helped you perhaps in the past. Yeah. And you've got that, that, that double, uh, you know, because you're in a vulnerable situation, it's much easier for that trust to be jeopardized than say if there weren't any consequences. Say if you just happened to meet a doctor at a party and you were just having a bit of a conversation, you know, you might be able to slowly build that, build that trust up over time, but any uh, potentially erroneous or just non-relevant information he gives you won't stop you from seeing other people in the similar profession. But in that vulnerable moment, if you hear something that you're like, this doesn't sit right or this this runs counter to what I'm what I'm familiar with, um, you are then way less likely. You've kind of you've you've had that thing more significantly um, undermined. That that yeah. that that trust yeah. is undermined. Yeah. Um, there's there's a good example from. Uh, around the time that parents have children, right? The, our health system rightly cares for the expecting mother and the fetus. Um, but we've got a health system that so greatly caters for that in some circumstances that the father feels disregarded. I, I know when uh, when the mother of my children was pregnant with them, I would attend some appointments and I would get called dad. Um, that's not my name. My kids don't call me dad. They use my name. Um, something as simple as that is isolating for fathers mm. and they'll disengage. You, I'm, I'm, I'm unnecessary in this context. They feel like I'm just like every other bloke who's ever walked through the door. I have no specific role here. Yeah, um, but they're easy ways to feel when you've not been included. Yeah. I'm going to have to press four. <laughs> All right, we will, we will jump back in. We can hit back on that if you need to. Yeah, beautiful. Okay, so we had pee break, dogs come in, and coffee making pause. Thankfully. Um, and also lost our place, so we'll just skip right ahead. Um, 
just a few more things on men's health. Mm. Um, do, do men today have lower testosterone levels than previous generations? That's a difficult question to answer for a couple of reasons. Okay. One of which is we don't have measurements of testosterone in people from 100 years ago, sure. let alone thousands of years ago or yeah. our ancestors. Um, certainly our health impacts on our testosterone levels. So people who are chronically unwell and there are more of those people about than perhaps there was once before. Mm, okay. They will have lower testosterone levels. When we're sick, our testosterone, our testosterone levels go down. Um, if you are chronically obese, then your testosterone levels probably a little lower. If you are diabetic, then your testosterone level is probably a little lower. So because we have so many people like that, the answer might be yes. Um, but if you are a fit and healthy man, then there is no reason why your testosterone, why your testosterone level would be any lower than your grandfather's, for example. Okay. Uh, earlier you were talking about, um, you know, the, the, the BPAs and phthalates and how the compound looks like estrogen and our body uses it like it would estrogen. What does our body use estrogen for? So there are two of what we think of as sex hormones. The predominant male sex hormone is testosterone and the predominant female sex hormone is estrogen. So estrogen is used for uh, making females appear and function like females and testosterone is used for making males look like and function like males. Now, some things are not just... So, Oh, Ricky, shut up. I don't even know where he is. Sorry. Um, so these sex hormones have sexual functions, um, but they also have biological functions that are somewhat independent dependent or maybe to some extent dependent on their sexual function. For example, we need testosterone to keep our testosterone to keep our bones strong. Mm, and okay. both men and women need strong bones. Estrogens tend to inhibit testosterone a little bit in a male body. Uh, so there are some 
circumstances in which men may have lower than normal testosterone levels. A good example would be in something called Klinefelter's syndrome. Klinefelter's syndrome is a genetic variation where the person has, instead of one X chromosome and one Y chromosome, has two or more X chromosomes. What that causes is a relative overexpression, sort of a hyperabundance of X chromosome genes, and some of those are responsible for estrogen. Mm. Ten people who have Klinefelter syndrome have low testosterone levels. So again, the estrogens can sort of predominate. And there's a sort of typical Klinefelter syndrome phenotype, so shape of the body, um, where people tend to put weight on around their hips rather than in their belly. So men tend to deposit fat around their gut and women tend to deposit fat around their hips and behinds. Um, so people with Klinefelter syndrome have penises. They are identified as male by the people who care for them. They live life as males until they hit puberty and puberty doesn't go ahead like it should mm. because of the lack of um, because of the lack of testosterone. Uh, these men tend to have gynecomastia, so um, the breast tissue develops a little bit under the influence of the estrogens. We, we think about um, man boobs. Some people have man boobs because they are overweight and there is fat there, but also the fat can cause an increase in estrogenic activity in the body and you can actually get the development of breast tissue in the male, which is what gynecomastia is. Um, and then our hormones also have effects on our behavior too. Um, so things like testosterone might make people more volatile, perhaps in their behavior. Um, you turn the estrogen, you turn the testosterone down and, and that sort of uh, impulsivity that men can, um, can display that, that may be less. Um, yeah, I'll, I can go further into X and Y chromosomes and sex determination. And then, you know, we think about our X and Y chromosomes determining whether we are male or female, but there are other genes on those chromosomes that have roles beyond sex determination and, and, and set our, our sort of physical phenotype as male and female. But as you develop with or without an X, uh, a Y chromosome, that changes the way your body works. So that then later on, when you have changes in hormones, your body responds differently because of how it developed early. So yeah, 
the effect of estrogens in the environment on a male body may well be quite different than the effects of the extra estrogenic activity in a female body mm. uh, because those bodies have developed differently because of their sex right. conception. Yeah. Fascinating and complicated. I, um, I've heard that there's a, um, there's a disparity in the size of the taint of people today. And that is indicative of, I think, te testosterone levels, maybe. Mm -hmm. Do you so, know much about that? Yeah, I'm not going to use that word because I think it's a terrible word. <laughs> yeah, and so I'm going to use the, what is the actual thing? Um, and that's your anogenital distance. So that is the distance. distance. Yeah, the distance between the back back end of your scrotum and your bum hole. Um, anogenital distance does appear to be affected by the amount of testosterone that's around when you are developing before you are born. Mm. It's something that is easily measured in animal experiments. I, and there is some suggestion that uh, environmental pollutants can affect anogenital distance in humans. The evidence, so far as I understand it, um, is not as compelling or is not compelling enough to convince me. Um, unfortunately, things that are easy to measure get measured a lot and a lot of stock gets put in their values. Um, often things that are simple to measure are not necessarily great indicators of what they claim to actually measure. So these are, it's like a proxy measure, right? There's a, um, the ratio of our digit lengths on our hands, the ratio of our finger lengths is also something that is purported to have, to be determined by our exposure to testosterone when we are fetuses. Um, these are somewhere along the way, somebody showed that there's a relationship between testosterone and uh, finger length or testosterone and anogenital distance. And based on whether or not that relationship looked like it was strong or weak or whatever, these, these proxy measures of exposure to testosterone while we're developing, um, get used in studies because if we want to make an, if, if, if we're interested in uh, whether your exposure and my exposure to testosterone as fetuses was any different, we, we can't measure our testosterone levels as fetuses. We didn't yeah, have sure. cord blood back then. Um, so we, we have to go for proxies. So we look at our finger lengths and perhaps if we're more compliant experimental subjects, Ryan, we might let somebody measure our anogenital distances. 
um, that's something that I'll leave for people to experiment themselves. <laughs> um, so the value of these sorts of measures um, is 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 not is certainly not a hundred percent. What tends to happen is somebody might observe an association between the amount of BPA in the environment and the anogenital distances of people who are born there. They'll publish that result and it gets a lot of attention. There might be a dozen other studies where people look at the same exposure and the same measurement, but they don't find the same thing. Right. The way science work, this way science works, the people who find a positive relationship between those things are more likely to have their work published than the people who don't find a relationship between those things. Mm. So the people who don't find that same relationship are discouraged from trying to publish it even in the first place. Right. Then, because of the attention that that one study that might find a relationship gets, that permeates our understanding and what we believe. And then all of the other studies that don't show that relationship don't get the attention. And uh, you know, and that counter argument, the, the counter view, the weight of contrary evidence um, just isn't as great as perhaps it should be. I think um, it's the thing, um, really profound uh, changes in our understanding of things really should require a commensurate level of evidence. You know, if we're going to if all of a sudden um, swans are no longer white, they can be black as well, then we'd like to see lots of examples of that to be sure that it wasn't one freaky mutant black swan, right? Yeah. Um, you see enough black swans, then you come to understand that, oh yeah, they can be black too. Um, whereas, uh, yeah, one study showing variations in anogenital distance is interesting, um, but you know we need to look at all of the rest of the evidence as well. And often that doesn't occur, and it, I, I think it probably doesn't occur in the the more general media landscape. Yeah, and you've got the you've got the issue of you know. A, a lot of these studies are done in first world Western countries, which are just made up of an amalgamation of different ethnicities and races and cultures. And so you've got that, uh, you know, physical inconsistency, but you're, you're trying to reduce it down to say something about the population. Yeah. Um, if there's, if there's difference in there You're like well yeah. all of these people's ancestors come from very different places and so the likelihood that what one body says 
and what another body says, those two things don't necessarily correlate to similar issues or, That's right. or a, a, a coming down of the testosterone levels or whatever it might be. That's right. So, um, for a long time, uh, lots of medical research, drug development was done using males. Um, so there's a whole bunch of medications that are, are prescribed to people um, based on a weight, an overwhelming amount of evidence from males. And... You know, women's body composition is different than men's, mm. so the drugs work differently in a female body than they do a male body. Um, we we now appreciate that, and organisations that fund medical research are starting to put their money where their mouth is in terms of gender balance in experiments, right? And and you know, I'm couching this in terms of sex, which is biological and tends to have two extremes. Um, whereas gender is another influence on our health that overlays that and, of course, is a continuum so far as I'm concerned. Um, the, um, oh, I think I've lost my train of thought. Just how men and women kind of respond differently to yeah. So, So in a study of men in a country like Australia, we have men of a variety of different racial backgrounds. Um, the, the genetic composition of those men, though, is largely very similar. The, the difference between um, two white men and a white man and a black man, uh, for all intents and purposes, it's the same degree of, of variation. There's such little difference between the two races, whereas there's 15 times greater difference between a male and a female. Mm. Um, so so that, that's why sex and gender are important in terms of health differences and, and that sort of stuff. But getting back to your point about, you know, how these studies are done, um, it, it, as, as I write things about men's health, I, I try to look at the best quality evidence, um, that almost always excludes people in minorities. And that may be minority in terms of, um, race. Uh, it's certainly minority in terms of uh, sexual orientation or, or gender identity. Uh, it's a it's a world. Uh, medical research is a world that's largely been done by white men on white men in mm. wealthy countries. Um, we 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 think about. We tend to think about health as individuals and we bring our individual identity to that. So um, I think about the things that affect my health, so things like my diet and how much I exercise and 
um, whether I injure myself and those sorts of things. But our health is largely determined by social factors, right? I have good health because I'm wealthy. Um, I have good health because I live in a wealthy country. Mm. I have good health because I am a wealthy person within a wealthy country. So I'm at, I'm at the top. One way to improve individuals' health is to give them more money. You give people enough money on new start, and then you have a whole bunch of more healthy people. Mm. Um, investment in public health improves the health of the public generally. The individuals at the bottom improve more than the people who are already at the top because they've already got enough money to be yeah. Well, just with that, you know, if you're, like, say, investments in public health, that's not money to poor people. It's usually billboards and advertising and education programs and things. So it's kind of, it's kind of like that money's just being flushed down the toilet. If, you know, if one of the major improvements on people's health is just access to more resources and to better better availability of, of, of food and things. Yep. Um, it would make more sense for like public institutions or education programs to just give handouts of money to people and be like, go buy some organic food. I have sat in meetings with experts in health who say we just need to give people more money. Mm. It can be that simple in some circumstances. Um, I was in a meeting yesterday and somebody was asked, what's the one thing they would tell a 15 year old boy or you would do for a 15 year old boy if you wanted him to be as healthy as possible throughout his life? And the person said, I'd improve his education. Mm. He said, educational outcomes uh, tend to be poorer for boys than girls. Yeah. And that limits our health behaviours. So better education uh, is something that can improve people's health. You know, just, just yeah. like give them more money, give them a better education. Um, and we see examples of that all over the place. Yeah. yeah, it's interesting. I've been looking a bit into kind of that, that disparity of males and females through school and like particularly university. And there's roughly been a shift or like a, a, a flip from the seventies where it was roughly 70, 30 male to female, and now it's gone the other way. And it's like 70 female to 30 male. And then even the, the, the graduation outcomes, like I think that's, that's, that's entry and then graduation outcomes, that disparity is larger again. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, it's interesting. Like, so you've got two young boys. Mm. How have you, 
like do you see that they're that they're challenged say more so than their female peers or um or like do you do you see issues there in how in how they respond to their schooling and maybe how their peers do or yep i i, I think hey can you shut up thank you it's just a pigeon just a pigeon um one of the things that was interesting about covid was that parents saw their children learning stuff at home instead of in the school environment still taught by teachers my experience is that boys engaged with that very differently than girls i only have a small sample size and this is all anecdotal um but my friends who have young girls uh their reports of school from home are very different than mm. my friends who had young boys mm. um, and i certainly observed that with my youngest boy um my oldest boy is a little peculiar um he's a bit like i was at school he likes tests and those sorts of things um so uh it, it you know for for his personality um i think school be it at home or at school is a different thing than than for the young guy because he's just got a different personality a different character um I, you know there's there's evidence that um you know it might be schools where there's mixed genders that they are better for boys than single sex boys schools right um but girls schools are better for girls education outcomes than mixed gender schools probably because the boys take all of the attention from the girls because mm. boys don't want to sit still and be told what to do they want to be running around bumping into things punching each other that's you know they work differently we have we have social systems for education that seem to favor one sex over another mm. um, we have economic systems that favor one sex over another in it in the opposite way yeah yeah on the flip yeah and we have we have health outcomes that favor one sex over the other and health services that perhaps favor one sex over another um there's there are these inequities between sexes or genders um that go in different ways depending on where you look um i think it's important that we balance that inequity and get it as small as possible mm. hard nuts to crack no? yeah yeah and there being um like that's a relatively large reform or mm. a large system kind of to to make all of these different things specific to the people i think there's a lot of um 
medical and health related services that are attempting to be more uh, client specific with the treatment um, methods offered and things like that. Yeah. Um, yeah, that, that, that whole sort of patient centered care, the idea that you would go to your doctor and tell him what your symptoms are and then do what you're told is a very, very old fashioned way of seeing the doctor. Mm. Um, you know, people now arrive for their doctor's in appointments more informed than perhaps they ever were before. And, and some of that will be misinformation from TikTok. Um, but people expect to be more involved in their care and to have more of a say. Um, you know, my doctor will ask me whether I prefer to see an osteopath or a physiotherapist, for example. Um, once upon a time, they would make that decision. Uh, we see that with things like, you know, so far as men's health is concerned, um, prostate cancer screening. You know, we don't have a national prostate cancer screening system um, like when we used to measure PSA in every man. You know, everybody would have a blood test for prostate-specific antigen and then we would base care on that number. Um, we know that that's unwise. We don't do that because sometimes somebody's got a high prostate specific antigen level, uh, but not because they have prostate cancer. And then you go and do a whole bunch of investigations to make sure that they don't have prostate cancer and the investigations do more damage than, than good. Right. So, so that requires that there is a, there is more involvement of the patient in the decisions about their care. Now, if you go to see a doctor because you might have concerns that you've got some problem with your prostate, they might measure your prostate specific antigen level, but they'll do it after talking to you about the pros and cons of that. And what are the likely outcomes if the number is high? Um, what is the plan of attack if the number is high? Um, what are the other options for, for doing things? Um, it, it's a lot more, um, it, sorry, I'm going to say it, it can be a lot more inclusive than it used to be. I think earlier on we were talking about, um, you were talking about even if you have a regular GP, um, a lot of, a lot of healthcare is just kind of transactional. You, you go and see the doctor. And it, it is kind of like that old fashioned way. And I'll, you know, there are these online health services now where you can enter in your symptoms and um, they'll get a doctor to look at it online and then get back to you. Um, th those sorts of one-off, there's something wrong, I'll go and see anybody and get the treatment just for that thing. Um, that's, a, that's quite a departure from where it used to be the case where the family had the family doctor and he actually knew everybody in the family and he saw them all the time. So, so they would know, and I'm saying him here because back in the day, they were all hymns. Um, the, 
having having that relationship with the doctor where they understand your previous health history and therefore how recent events might relate to that um, is incredibly valuable. But it's something that these little transactions about our health don't involve so much now. So while there's benefit in better engagement of people in their healthcare, um, we also need the continuity of care as well. Yeah. So it, yeah, we kind these of are, these are difficult. You know, it, something like an online um, health service can be very valuable to men because they feel like they don't have the time to go and see the doctor, but they can sit at their desk during their lunch break and you know have a transaction about their health. Um, that has benefits and that improves the ability that it, that increases the availability of some health services to some people. But it's not everything that we need for our health. Mm. Yeah, yeah. So kind of as we've increased our uh, uh, our our consumer options we've you know we've got all of these new things we can buy we've uh, we haven't maintained uh that kind of long-term kinship that keeps things um in that more traditional form of uh settled mm. and like you know if you've also got if you've had that that family doctor and they're familiar with your parents there's also that benefit of like okay well your old man suffered from from this thing so there's a chance that you're going to as well so let's just make sure that we're mitigating those effects you know now um yeah it's interesting i wonder kind of like how 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 could we go about kind of keeping those two things there like having having the additional options of like okay there are all of these specialists you can go see now um, you know, you can get a, a person specific diet plan from this person. You can, you know, you can trace your ancestry and figure out what might be the best diet relative to those sorts of things. And you can then go and see this specialist cause you've got shitty feet and you're going to need that help there, da, da, da. But also with someone who's been there the whole time, or at least mostly the whole time, um, I wonder if like using online services because people are moving around a lot more, if that could be how we maintain those kind of like long-term relationships with the doctor. Yep. You know? Well, yeah, I, we have better access to telehealth now than we used to. So it is possible for somebody to stay in touch with their regular GP even if they're not in the same place. Um, there's a bunch of health professionals though that would say there's nothing like sitting face to face with somebody and certainly uh, the necessity in lots of cases for a physical examination just to look at yeah, sure. what that sore is or you know to see how that leg bends. Um, those sorts of things are are really important. I think we know that 
we know that if people use primary care, so you know GPs and that sort of thing, um, that that keeps them out of hospital. So that would suggest that the um, the regular contact with someone to help you look after yourself generally um, is good for our health and avoids crises in our health. Um, I don't think we know the best way to encourage the formation and maintenance of those relationships with a primary healthcare provider. Um, I have this fantasy that there would be somebody that I would just go and check in would check in with every few months and I might just sit and talk to them. Um, I might not have any health concerns, but you know, they've known me for 10 years and they know I have a family history of something. Um, they might know that I had mental health concerns in the past and you know, they're, they're just looking out for, for my health and wellbeing. Um, and then if they notice something or if I complain of something, they can point me in the direction of a specialist uh, who they trust and therefore I might trust yeah. um, to, to deal with the things that are necessary there. But then I would come back to the GP for the follow-up and maintenance of all of that. Um, the, yeah, our system and our lifestyles, all of those things just don't enable that, I don't think. And, you know, that would suit me. It, it might not suit somebody else. Somebody else might want a completely different arrangement for their health. And, and that's cool. It's, I don't, I don't think we, I don't think we should expect that everybody wants and needs the same thing when it comes to looking after themselves. Mm -hmm. uh, everybody's, everybody's wants and needs are likely to be at least slightly different. Um, it would be good if there was a system that was responsive to that sort of variation between people. Yeah. And yeah, particularly if for the most part, our system has been designed around white men, mm. it would, it would make sense that there needs to be a certain amount of, uh, reform mm. to have it fit everybody or yeah. at least as many people as possible. Yeah. Well, I mean, as, as it exists at the moment, if, if you, if you were to think about uh, a business, um, trying to think of an example of services. Uh, okay, say you're an accountant, right? And the majority of people who are coming to you are small business people. You would tailor the services you provide to cater for that group of people predominantly. Um, and then if small business people are the biggest users of accountants, then you would expect the, uh, you would expect more use of accountancy services as small business group, that sort of thing. Um, with health, 
men's use of health services is less than women's. So the health services have, some people suggest that health services have adapted their provision of services to cater more for their predominant market, so more for women than men. And then that draws more women to the service and fewer men to the service. So a shift in the way that health services provide their service can influence who comes to them. And at the moment, it would seem that primary health care probably doesn't cater as well for males as it does for females, even though we come from this white man uh, expert medical provider um, kind of history. Mm. It's, it's medicine is something that uh, perhaps white men do, um, but not they don't they don't sit on the receiving side as much as they do on the provision side. Yeah, right. All that and 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 all of that's changing, of course. Yeah, yeah. Have you found that that younger men are, are more willing to seek out medical assistance and health services than? Yeah, that that's interesting. The the research. The survey that Healthy Male has done suggests that younger men are less interested in preventive health things. Preventive health is a strange term. It means preventing illness, staying well. Um, you know, are less like are less interested in doing those things that you do to look after yourself than older men are. That we, younger men have, it would seem, a sense of invulnerability sure. that encourages them to take more risks, behave more recklessly. Um, that's one of those crazy sort of gender things that males do. Um, and that seems to extend to our health as well. We, You know, we have a, there's a national uh, colon cancer screening program, right? You turn 50 and you get an envelope with a testing kit. Um, males avail themselves of that screening less than females do. We, we males, don't seem to do as much to maintain our health or to prevent illness as females do. Um, but that doesn't mean that we're not doing what's right for us. Um, you ask men about their health and they're continually aware of their health and well-being and any illnesses. And um, if I start to feel unwell, I'll keep my eye on the symptoms and once they reach my threshold of intolerability, I'll go and see the doctor. The same as anybody else will, you know, feel a niggle. And when it reach the, reaches their threshold, 
they'll go and see the they'll go and see the doctor. Those thresholds are different for everybody. Mm. Um, younger men tend to be concerned with other things. We we have a we live in a society where you know men's resilience is rewarded, encouraged. Um, just get on with it. Uh, certainly it is the case that men's showing vulnerability is much more accepted or perhaps encouraged than it once might have been. Um, but there are still, I don't know, fathers, grandfathers, social systems that might still expect you just to toughen up sunshine. Um, and and young men are operating in in that kind of environment still. Uh, I think my my ex my personal experience of young people um, is that they are much more aware of their health and maintaining their health than I was when I was of a comparable age to the people that I observe. Um, so I think there may be some more awareness, but it's it's not always just the awareness or the knowledge that people have relating to their health that determines their behaviours, right? We can, mm -hmm. we, can, we can know that it's not good for us to smoke, um, but we'll still do it. Yeah. Yeah, I have a, I have a mate, and he regularly responds to uh, questions or even just me talking about different things. He's like, yeah, yeah, I know, I know. Mm -hmm. But then looking at his lifestyle, I'm like, well, you may well know, mm. but you're not doing anything with it. So mm. the the knowing is essentially irrelevant. Um, it's almost like a defensive reflex to be like, no, no, I know. Mm. Like, you know, yeah, I know about that. Mm. But, you know, yeah. I'm not necessarily uh, going to. Yeah. For some people, it's a challenge. Yeah. It's something for them to to counter with uh, behavior that is contrary to what is good for them. Um, just, just because they can. Yeah. Um, that that's the thing about uh, about health communication is that people don't change their health behaviours based on what they know. Mm. They change their health behaviours based on a whole bunch of other things, much like they change their behaviour related to the car they drive or where they live or whether or not they shop in the supermarket or the organic grocer. Um, hey. Ricky. Ricky, it's okay. Ricky. Ricky. Quietly. So look, you're going to do that. Quietly. That's it. Um, good boy, Ricky. Um, 
our we we change the way we behave the way we do so that we can fit in with the people around us in our society we rely on other people to look after us to varying degrees um and if we don't fit in then we are vulnerable and we are at risk so we tend to to behave in a way that is going to maintain our belonging to a group and maintain our status within a group so what we need to do to influence people's health behavior is for the people who are around them to be encouraging the health behavior mm. to be accepting of the changes in behavior you know you you might have a friend who's always been the person who drinks too much at the party and suddenly they realize and they decide they don't want to drink anymore the next party oh you're not drinking anymore go and just have a beer <clears throat> we should that what what's what we should be doing in those situations for the benefit of that person is that's freaking awesome oh i'm gonna try not drinking as well or that's cool let me get you a glass of water whatever yeah yeah it is um that that sort of social support for positive health behavior um that's not always there and especially in a bunch of young boys who are interested in um competing yeah yeah no absolutely i did a i did a video on instagram the other day just talking about exactly that like you know it's it's difficult to make changes in your life and it makes them way more difficult when the people around you either dismiss the change or they they're like well you know come on mm. like i know you as the person that does that how dare you how dare you change yeah that's right <laughs> yeah um all right well We'll, uh, we'll slowly wrap it up now. I've probably got maybe one more question I can ask you. Mm. Um, but just on that, um, kind of while while you were talking, I, you know, it it almost seems like like group therapy should be applied to uh young young men and say with health related things of like you get a friendship group together yep and then you put them through a certain kind of education program or whatever it is you know and then you get them to monitor each other's levels and how they're progressing and things like that like that almost seems like a a thing that could be implemented say in a school or something you know you notice that those guys all seem to hang out together and they influence one another's behavior and like all right well let's get them all in and see if we can you know um adjust or influence or you know promote them to try this other thing but doing it together then yep. you've got a slightly better better outcome yep so there's a wonderful example of how that works for men's health and that is the men's sheds mm. 
the there's an there's a whole bunch of academic literature around how effective they are about engaging men in more positive health behaviors right. uh, and the benefits to men's health of being a shedder um, as you were talking I was I was also thinking about uh, programs that are initiated by young indigenous men uh, in Australia and overseas uh, for uh, retreats for want of a better word you know uh, going away spending time together um, it might be connections with each other connections with country um, but those sorts of uh, those sorts of activities where social and environmental bonds are, are built and, and fostered, um, they have they have good health outcomes. Um, mm. we, I, I I need to I need to at the end of this, Ryan, show you a book because I can't remember the name of the book that I've started to read, um, and. It's pretty compelling in the way it conveys the value of what we would consider primitive ways of living. And that when Europeans made contacts with First Peoples from all around the world, uh, those, those Indigenous people were kind of looking at the white fellows and shaking their heads and couldn't understand why they behaved in the way that they did. Um, and, and a lot of it was, uh, was that these indigenous people seemed much more content. And I think that sense in terms of well-being um, is a massive part of our health and we don't foster that part enough you know we, we separate physical and mental health all mm. the time in our discussions about people's health yeah I, I, that doesn't make any sense to me um and then you you see aboriginal and torres strait islander people whose sense of health and well-being is not so much personal as it is community and relationship with the environment um that sort of richness in terms of, of what makes you well um i i think is wonderful and it stands in stark contrast to just getting about your day on your own until you feel unwell and going to the doctor um i think there's some wisdom in that for us yeah yeah definitely i've been looking a lot into uh like men's circles and kind of like uh uh you know single sex spaces but like mm -hmm. specifically like men's retreats and rites of passage and these like initiatory programs mm -hmm. and um yeah as you were talking i was thinking like well you could do kind of that you know because they're, they're they're more focused on like a psycho spiritual kind of component yep but you could 
without much uh, alteration, you could include, you know, uh, physical health mm. improvements, you know, like whether it be like exercise related things or even just like, you know, uh, you've got the older man kind of talking about, you know, make sure to get these things checked out, make sure to, you know, be vulnerable about these areas of your of your health in different areas, blah, blah, blah. Um, yeah, and even a like a potentially a gym setting mm-hmm. where they've got a uh, like a mental health vulnerability mm-hmm. component, mm-hmm. and then they've got a doctor or a couple nurses on hand who are who can monitor your blood, like they can do your screens, you can figure out where you're at in that regard. You know, you can kind of, you can then like really tailor how someone improves and whether they want to get stronger or whether they just want to maintain, but you could kind of do that across the board, the whole gamut of, of health. Um, and also have that, have that, uh, vulnerability training for lack of a better way of putting it, um, where men are more willing to, to open up and, um yeah like i don't know like i did a i did a sacred men's circle out in dalesford and it's it's blown my fucking mind just how effective it is and one of the main things i noticed was there was a thing there that i didn't realize i was missing and that was just vulnerable intimacy with men Mm-hmm. Um, just like there was like there was physical contact we we sing together we you know we 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 sit and listen to each other we 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 provide a certain kind of feedback that's not it's not corrective or prescriptive it's just like i i i i responded you know, emotionally when you said this, and I just want to thank you for bringing that up, you know, things like this. And I, I had no idea that I, that I, that I didn't have that in my life and just how, how important that is. Yep. Um, yeah, I, I, we are social creatures. We've, we've evolved, um, to, to, to need and, uh, to want to provide Mm. that sort of, emotional and spiritual connection um yeah sometimes the way we behave in the modern world strips some of that away it's interesting as you were speaking about the things that you did in that circle um there are things that i do with my boys you know we're in the car and the music's on and we're singing together Mm -hmm. Um, we we do have you know there, there is there is a degree of physical intimacy. There is emotional vulnerability and all of those things in the relationship that I have with my dad and that I have with my boys. Um, so that men's circle for me uh, might have a different value than it would for you. You don't see your dad as frequently as I see mine, you know, that sort of stuff. You don't have kids. Um, finding ways that we can 
we can get all of these things that we seem to need to to be well. Um, I think I think it's really important. It's interesting. Something else that you were saying along the way then about you know in a gym if there was some sort of health service provision. That's I and I was talking about you know going on country. Um, there's a there's a good argument for taking health services to men rather than expecting them to come to the health service, Um, especially because uh, if, and we know that men who have much more adherence to those old fashioned stereotypical masculine values, you know, stoicism and that sort of stuff. um, Those men are less likely to use health services because it, contradicts their mm. sense of invulnerability right mm. um but if you take a health service to them then they're more likely to engage um so there's a lot of value in that and this you know this all gets back to tailoring things to the way that the way that people need them to be for them for you know individually yeah yeah and i wonder too like uh say men that are in the military mm. because they've got all those services available if they would be more likely to be on top of physical issues you know there's a bit of issue around the mental health side of things with that mm. with that which i think is probably to be expected when mm. you've got a bunch of trained killers <laughs> yeah, that's right. there's likely to be some issues there um but yeah i i, I wonder if just in terms of like uh, physical well-being if they're more if if men are more likely to seek out the services just because they're they're right there they're they're mm. in the same area that you're doing your work where you're you're eating your food it's all just kind of neatly packed away yep. and, and if maybe yeah if maybe men do better with those kinds of like compounds mm. You've got it all sorted out. You don't have to make a special trip out to anyone in particular. You you go see your priest on the weekend if you need to, and then you go see your doctor, and then you go work out, and then you know you you don't have to um yeah make those special special trips. Yep. But one more one more thing too that, that's relevant to Ryan, and that is that we know that people who have fewer social connections have poorer health than people with rich social networks. Mm. Um, you know, this old thing about uh, married men live longer than men who are not married. Um, we now know that it's not just having the social connection, but it's feeling the social connection that matters. Mm. So you can have a very small social group but if you're not wanting for uh that social contact then then that's enough you can be you can be surrounded by people you can still feel lonely right yeah it's it's that loneliness is damaging to health um you can be isolated but not be lonely and that's not damaging to your health mm. um, it's it you know that that again it's it's that sense of 
belonging and it's that sense of connection um, that seems to be really important for helping us stay well. Yeah. Yeah, there's a um, uh, Susan Pinker wrote The Village Effect. Yeah. And there's a great little thing in there of um, they were looking at the the physical health impacts of people in, in solitary confinement. Mm -hmm. And they found that there is a, uh, a direct proportional parallel of the physical impact to the brain of someone who is in solitary confinement as to someone who has been, uh, who has received blunt trauma to the head. There is the same physical outcome to the to the state of the brain. Um, yeah, and I'd, I'd always return to that one of just like the loneliness is is the killer. Yeah. 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 All right. Well, I very much appreciate this, Tim. Me too. Um, well over the time that I said we were going to go for, so I appreciate you That's okay. sticking it out. I'm delighted to, Ryan, this is as valuable to me as it is to you, mate. Excellent. That's lovely to hear. Uh, let, me, let me get that. Yeah, bit. yeah, yeah, please. I'm spewing because, so I, I think I read about this book online somewhere or I heard about it on a podcast and uh, it's only just been published. I got it from the library. And it's a freaking big sucker. Yeah, right. I've just not had time to read it, so I've got to return it to the library today. It's called The Dawn of Everything, and it's written by David Graeber. Oh, David Graeber, yep. It's fucking awesome. It's really good. Oh, yeah, get that. Right. I think I'm going to buy a copy because I clearly can't read it in the time that the library allows me. Yeah. Um, oh, it's so good. Just that wisdom of old ways of living compared to the bullshit that's taken over the world. Yeah. Yeah, you know, and there's like, I think there's an issue for, for, for a lot of people examining these things, particularly those of, say, European descent. And we worry that we're appropriating anything that's that's old. Mm -hmm. Like, oh, well, you know, that's not us. We're, we're modern people, blah, blah, blah. And it's like, I don't think you've realised that just because you have European descent doesn't mean you're not from indigenous people your ancestors were indigenous to their place where they were and they had probably very very similar practices mm. of getting together eating off the land you know they 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 had that psycho spiritual relationship the same way that you know dark-skinned mm. uh, indigenous people have mm. um yeah I, that, that's a whole that's a whole, <laughs> whole massive podcast in itself, yeah. isn't it? Um, all right, excellent. Do you have anything coming up that you would like to plug and or advertise? No, I don't. Um, no articles coming out or? Oh, look, I write three or four articles a month. The healthy mail, all of that stuff goes up on the healthy mail website. Um, that's always I I enjoy everything that I write about there. I, I I'm blessed in my job because I have the opportunity to learn stuff which I like, and then to 
share that. Um, yeah, most of what I write is for health professionals. If you go to the Healthy Mail website and you look at the health professional stuff, a lot of that I've written. Um, some of my ideas sneak through along the way. Um, I, you know, I'm, I'm writing information for health professionals, so it has to, has to give them something valuable. Um, uh, yeah, yeah, but uh, I, I think pro I, I wonder about my job. I think sometimes um, it, it, it's like I'm on some kind of journey in this men's health space. Like I've I've come to it with an understanding of health and medical research and whatnot and learned about men more than I have had previously. Um, and as I become more educated and my ideas develop, um, I wonder how long I'll remain interested in, in it at this kind of level and where it where it wants to take me. Mm, okay. Yep. Um, but it's, it's yeah, good job. That's it's always fun. Mm. Good. And that's 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 better health. No, that's healthy mail. Healthy mail. Fuck, I don't Dot know why I keep page. thinking better health. Yeah, healthy mail. Um, do you work with any other companies or organisations? Healthy mail. Healthy mail originated uh, in what we've traditionally thought of as men's health. You know, testes and penises and things. Um, we now are much more broad than that. So we partner with a variety of different organisations. Some of the information that we send out goes out through other government funded health service organisations. Um, we do some work with Movember. I was in a meeting with um, the Australian Institute of Family Studies. Um, so yeah, we, we don't, we don't like to replicate something that's already done well somewhere else. Um, but for evidence-based health information for men and boys, um, it's a pretty good place to go. Even the not even um, the information that's written for members of the public. Uh, has the same sort of evidence base as the stuff we're writing for health professionals. So um, it can be relied upon to be honest and accurate. Excellent. Beautiful. Well, thank you very much, Tim. I appreciate it. Thank you very much, Ryan. I look forward to talking to you again soon. Though. Definitely. All right. I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Dr. Tim Moss. Um, there'll be a Substack post uh, along with this, so 
any comments you can leave there. I don't know if you can leave comments on many other platforms. Maybe Spotify, like maybe as a rating or something like that. Anyway, um, I just wanted to add this at the end just to say I've been away for a minute. Um, yeah, it's been a couple months since I've uploaded any conversations. So if you are still listening or if you are new, well, if, if you're still listening, uh, thank you for coming back. And if you're new, uh, hope you like it. And also, don't worry about the fact that I was away for a while. It's got nothing to do with you. Uh, yeah, today I'm um, using somebody else's studio. So I've got a better microphone. I've got a better camera. I've got a very comfortable, uh, I don't know, like sport racing computer chair. Um, yeah, so I've got a few recorded conversations ready to go. Uh, I'll, I'll, I'll be back in more of a regular routine of putting them out once a month. If the volume picks up of how many people are, uh, how many people I'm interviewing, then I can probably start to do one a fortnight. Um, but at the moment, balancing many, many moving parts, many different things, I just don't have the um, the bandwidth necessary to be finding appropriate guests and more of them and putting time aside to do the interviews and etc so thank you for your time today um, remember to like comment share subscribe on the various platforms I'm on most of them I'll be up on uh, stitcher sometime soon it's just the it's the very easy thing of setting up an account and giving it the RSS fee but uh, I'll blame this one on the bandwidth as well. Have a lovely day, and I'll see you next episode.